Okay, we are going to be in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. And on your way there, if you're turning in your Bible, um, I also want you to stop or to pause briefly at Exodus 3, our text from last week. I want you to put your finger there and then go on to 1 Kings chapter 19, because we're going to spend most of our time in 1 Kings 19, but we're going to go back to Exodus 3 a few times. So if you would um, open your Bibles to that, and as you do that, I just want to remind everybody that tonight we're having a 5 p.m. four-hour prayer service at the church, and all of you who are spiritual will be here for that, right? <laughs> Carl kind of gives me a weird look, kind of like... I, I, this is my cup I had this morning. I shouldn't have picked a red cup to, uh, for my water, and then somebody uh, had written on it, Go Chiefs. I happen to know who that person is. I also found this morning somebody in my office slid this under the door, so I'm getting a lot of gifts t- <laughs> today. Um, but a big day and chance to get together and have fun. So we've started this series on the names of God, right? And I'm really excited about it. We're going to be in the whole semester doing this because there's a lot of names of God that we're going to go through. And after last week's sermon, Patty Delmott sent me something the next day that I didn't even know about. It's, a, it's an actual tra- Bible translation that you can find in Bible Gateway. It's called the Names of God Bible. And it's really hard for you to see. I try to make it a little bit bigger. But when you open the passage, rather than like Lord, it'll either say Adonai or Yahweh. So you actually know what's going on underneath it. And so like in Exodus 3, 4, it says, when Yahweh saw that Moses had come over to see it, Elohim called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Elohim just means God. So if you're interested, I think that could be a a helpful resource. So I just wanted to throw that out. I'm glad she sent that. But why are we doing this series and why is this so important? It's because I'm convinced that we need to know God as he truly is, as he truly is. And that's why we're doing this. A.W. Tozer wrote, it's it's a long quote, but it's one of my most favorite quotes. He wrote this, that when it comes What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance. A right conception of God is basic. Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he truly is and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. Let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized peoples are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. So the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and to elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him. And that's what we're trying to do in this series. Through his names and his character, we're trying to know him as he truly is. And the name we're doing this morning is Yahweh-Rohi. And I want you to say that with me. Can you say that? Yahweh-Rohi, and that's Hebrew, and it means I am your shepherd. I am your shepherd. It appears in Psalm 23.1, which we read. Um, that first sentence, the Lord is my shepherd, it actually in Hebrew starts with a name of God. It just simply says at the beginning, Yahweh Rohi. And so David is saying, I am is my shepherd. I am is my shepherd. 
Um, I'm not going to preach on Psalm 23. Peck did last summer, did a great job with that text. It's worth a listen. I love that. Um, I actually spoke on it when we were in the COVID lockdown, and I had to make I had to make sermons to a phone, which was the craziest thing. Um, did it back then. So we're actually going to go to a place where we see God doing shepherding and seeing what it actually looks like, okay? Um, the Bible in other places talks about God as a shepherd, just a few of those. In 1 Peter 2.25, God is called the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Twice in Psalms, we are spoken of as the sheep of his pasture in Psalm 90, 79, 13, and in Psalm 100, verse 3, where it says, know that I am is God. It is he who made us, and we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. In Isaiah 40, 11, we're told that he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. So it's a really intimate name, isn't it? This is a really intimate name of his. Jesus even applies this to himself and says, I am the good shepherd. Um, We're going to see this more as I go through the sermon, but somebody had asked last week afterwards, is it only the Father that's I am, or is it the whole Trinity? It's the whole Trinity. Jesus appropriates I am, and you're going to see Jesus actually in this story in a unique way. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. In Luke 12, 32, he tells his followers to not be afraid and calls them his little flock. So this is a really important metaphor in the scripture, and it's an important name of God. So let me ask you a question. What do shepherds do? You give me a few things. What do shepherds do? Do what? Yeah, they heard. Protect. They what? Can you somebody say it louder for me? They hunt for fish. Yes, sheep are famous for that. What else? I heard there was another one over here. Yeah, they take care of the sheep, right? What are some other things shepherds do? Yeah, they live with their sheep. They, they guide them. They lead them. They know them by name, right? They care for them. Watch over them. They what? Yeah, they protect them. They tend to their wounds. There's so many things that shepherds do. So what I want to do again is I'm not going to look at Psalm 23, but I want to look at a story where we see God's shepherding heart, where we see the Yahweh Rohi actually applying that to an actual event. Um, so we're in 1 Kings 19. Jason Hubner actually preached on this story last year after, after Easter, and it was a really good sermon. I'm going to do something a little bit different with this story, but that's worth a listen if you're interested. But let me set up chapter 19 of 1 Kings for you. I want to talk just briefly about what's going on here, and mainly in chapters 17 and 18. So Ahab and Jezebel have become the king and queen of the northern kingdom of Israel. They have led them into the worship of Baal. They put Baal statues all over. Baal's wife, Asherah, they've got Asherah poles all over the place. They've led the people astray into the worship of this. So God raises up a prophet named Elijah, whose name is Ali, Eli Yah, Eli Elohim, Yah, Yahweh, God is... Yahweh, I am is the true God. That's what his name means. Anytime, by the way, you see a J-A-H or Y-A-H or A-H ending in a name, it's almost always Yahweh is part of it. So he rises up, raises up Elijah. Elijah confronts King Ahab and from God tells him it's not going to rain um, until, you know, this nation repents and turns and he ends up running away and goes in hiding. Um, Jezebel and Ahab are hunting him down that whole time trying to find him to kill him. And he's in hiding for three and a half years with no rain. And then God calls him out. 
not calls him out in a bad way, calls him out of his hiding. Um, and he says, go to Ahab. And so he goes to Ahab and he says, we're going to have a showdown. It's going to be between Yahweh and, and, and Baal. And we're going to see, this is like going to be the Super Bowl, okay, for the whole nation. This is a big deal. It's going to be a big contest. So they built altars, 850 prophets of Baal, Elijah all alone. And they build these altars, and he says, we're going to pray, and whichever God sends down fire is the true God. And so they spend the whole day praying to Baal. He lets them go first because they won the coin toss. And they pray all day. No fire comes, and then it's his turn, and he prays to God, and fire comes down, totally um, consumes the altar. It's a great story. If you haven't read it, um, it's, it's a story worth telling. And so there's this epic victory. God is proven to be the true and living God. Elijah is vindicated as his prophet. Um, well, I mean, what a moment, right? And so for Elijah, it's almost like, like I can retire now. He's had his big moment. He can hang it up right off into the sunset. He gets to go out on top just like two famous people I know, okay? Gets to go out on top. Um, I was expecting a bigger reaction to that, but, you know, I had to do something to kind of, I couldn't leave Sunday untainted for you guys, okay? I had to do something. Um, And by the way, it's the only way the Broncos were going to make it into this Sunday anyways was in my sermon. So if I hadn't have done this, uh, who knows where they would be. So look at chapter 18. You're in 19, but look at chapter 18, verse 45. It says, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel, which is the capital um, of the northern kingdom. Here it is. You can see where Mount Carmel is. It's not that far to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Um, And when he got there, I'm sure he was expecting a revolution, right, that everything would change, that the people of God will have, the Israelites will have totally repented. There's a revival that's happened. Um, they've turned back to God. They welcome him to the city. He gets the key to the city. He's probably lifted up on, you know, on everybody's shoulders and he's carried around the city. That, that Ahab and Jezebel, if they have not turned from God, that God's going to bring them to their knees. Um, in his mind, they're going to get back. Everybody's going to join hands in the city and sing Kumbaya, right? That's kind of what he's expecting. But none of that happened. So look at verse, chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not take, make your life like that of one of them. Um, and we're told in chapter 18 that Jezebel had killed some of the prophets of God, so she is not only willing, she is able to do this, okay? And so verse 3, it says, Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. So he had just come back, this great victory, and now he's scared to death. He tucks tail and runs, and I probably would too. No, no blame on that. A. Hauser in his commentary says, victory seems to be transformed suddenly into defeat, the brave prophet into a cowering refugee. And so this man who's lived for three and a half years in exile, hidden away, is like back on the run, going to have to go into hiding again. Can you imagine what that would feel like? That's been his whole career, is hiding away. So back to verse 3. It says, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, and here's a map of where Beersheba is. It's in the very south of Israel at that time. The nation now goes further south, but at that time it was the very southern city. So he, he came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. 
Kind of sounds like Moses taking the people into the wilderness, right? And I want you to know this area that he's entering when he leaves Beersheba, this is like no man's land. It's a barren, arid desert. This is what it looks like. That's the area that he's going into. Um, It's like totally crazy there. So verse 4 says he came to a broom bush, to a broom bush. And that is a photo of a broom bush. Um, Hardly any vegetation grows in that desert. This is one tree that does grow, grows to about 10 feet tall. It's the only thing that provides shade in that whole area. So he came to a broom bush, we're told in verse 4, sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So here's Elijah. He's exhausted. He's drained of strength, scared out of his wits, desperate and despondent, right? Um, He's left his country. He left his staff behind. And by that, I don't mean his walking stick. He left his church staff in Beersheba, okay? So left his staff behind. And I think, in a sense, he's just giving up ministry. He's just saying, this is not what I expected when you called me. I've spent most of my time on the run. Um, This is tough. Like, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm hanging it up. I'm finished. That's what he's saying, essentially. Ever feel that way? I'm curious. You ever had those kind of feelings and thoughts? Giving up, throwing in the towel? If so, join the club. Because all of God's saints have felt that way at one time or another, have struggled with those kinds of, those feelings. Um, and in fact, many of his greatest saints, like Elijah. Or how about this? Have you ever found yourself having like a spiritual victory or a spiritual high in your life? You know, you go to, you can't make a big decision, or you talk to some friends, you feel like you've gotten victory over sin, or something happens, and you're kind of on a high, and then all of a sudden, it's quickly followed. You feel like you're getting in a, a spiritual attack from Satan. Things are happening totally unexpected, or you kind of fall into a despondent kind of despair. Ever had that happen, like Elijah? I mean, I remember when we used to work with internationals, and we'd take students every year to Bear Trap for a week in winter um, to an evangelistic house party, we would see consistently every year because we kind of we had a some a thing we asked that we measured this, but the two out of three of the non-believers who went there made spiritual movement towards Jesus. We'd see people come to faith. It was always a huge spiritual victory. And then we'd get home, and as soon as we'd get home, like the day or two after, I would get despondent, full of despair. I'd be like, I'm a nothing, like I can't do anything. Things would happen in my life that felt like a spiritual attack. This I experience this every year. And this is what Elijah's going through. But one more thing. And all the commentators agree on this. Elijah was also depressed. He was depressed. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm curious if there's anybody here who's ever struggled with depression. Again, if you have, you're in really good company because some of the great saints of the Bible did. Elijah, Jeremiah, David, likely Job. And some of the great saints in history have struggled with depression. The famous Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, struggled with it his whole life, his whole life, as did Martin Luther and John Bunyan. So as we come to this point in the story, here is my big question. Here's my big question. How is God going to show up in this? Because Elijah desperately needs shepherding, does he not? He needs a shepherd right now. And so what I want to do is let's watch and see what God does, and let's see how God comes as Yahweh Rohi to him. So verse 5. All at once, continuing in verse 5, all at once an angel touched him, 
significant, and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. So, wow, God simply cooks him a meal. Is that not cool? Cooks him a meal. He ate and drank, and then he lay down. And here's what's really cool to me in this, is God has done this before to him before. It's almost like a reminder. If you go back to chapter 17, when he first went into exile, God fed him through ravens for years, bringing him meat and bread every day so that he could be sustained. And then God called him to, a, to even leave Israel to, another, to Sidon, and there he met a widow of Zarephath who gave him bread and water. Miraculously, God gave bread and water through her until the time that he had the big showdown. So God had done this for him before. This is nothing new. And also, he's in the wilderness, miraculously getting, I mean, he's miraculously getting bread and water. And like, has anybody else ever had that experience? Well, Moses and Israel, right, have been given bread and water by God in the wilderness. But it doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. I want to tell you, when, when I read that this week, when I was looking at this text, I mean, it was like, I, I like came to a, a sudden halt. You know, if I were writing this, I'd say, stop the presses. Because that angel of the Lord, that the angel of the Lord is very significant. In the first occurrence in verse 5, it says, an angel of the Lord. But now it says, the second time the angel of the Lord came. And here's why that's important. Because the angel of the Lord actually is a physical manifest. It is God showing up physically. Anytime you see the angel of the Lord, and particularly, it is a pre-incarnate physical appearance of Jesus Christ, okay? So this is Jesus who has shown up into his story. Is that not really cool? Now, you know what? The angel of the Lord has shown up before, so I hope you have your finger in the book of Exodus chapter 3. So flip back to Exodus chapter 3, the story we looked at last week, because the angel of the Lord has shown up before in this story. And look at verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. So Moses is tending his flock, and look at verse 2. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that, though the bush on fire was on the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. I did not realize till a year ago. I had read over that. I just always thought, a bush on fire, a bush on fire, and I always read it with that. Until a year ago, I'm like, that was the angel of the Lord that was in that. Like, I had never seen that before. The pre-incarnate Jesus is who Moses met last week. The one who says, I am the I am. Isn't that really cool? That showed up with him there. So it's God himself who's making him breakfast. This is Yahweh. This is the great I am, who's the one at the griddle making pancakes and who's frying bacon, Okay so to speak. If it were me, that's what I would hope he would make for me. This is God himself showing up. Is that not cool? So back to the story. Verse 7. Again, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him. Touched him. Again, that's, I just think that's so cool. Second time. Um, now that we know it's the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus, has, has the angel of the Lord ever touched anybody before in the Old Testament? You go back to Genesis 32. He wrestled with Jacob, the angel of the Lord. And while they were wrestling, it says the angel touched his hip, totally dislocated it, threw it out of joint. The touch was so powerful, okay? But that's not the touch here. This is a really light, gentle, caring touch, okay? So he touched him, and he said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Again, really caring. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights. 
forgive me for keep interjecting some things, but 40 days and 40 nights is a significant number. That's the amount of time Moses spent on Mount Sinai when he received the law. Okay, same as Moses. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights till he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Here's the map again. Horeb was 200 miles south of Beersheba. That's about seven and a half miles a day on foot, which is normal distance for somebody traveling by foot. And here is that, what we are pretty sure is that mountain. That's Mount Horeb. And it says in verse 9, there Elijah went into a cave and he spent the night. There's only one cave-like structure on that mountain and this is it. So the odds are pretty high. This is where Elijah went. Now, there is a lot going on here. He went into a cave. This is really, really significant. There have already been some clues dropped in this story about why Elijah was going to Mount Horeb. So that's my question is, what is Mount Horeb? That's my first question. And why is it called the mountain of God? So what is Horeb and why is it called the mountain of God? And we find out again, if you go back to Exodus 3, Exodus chapter 3. So turn back to Exodus 3, keep your finger, and we're going to look at one more place in Exodus, so don't leave, don't leave it. In Exodus 3, verse 1, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro in his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to what? Came to Horeb. What do we normally call it? The mountain. Mount Sinai is what we normally call it. Came to Horeb. The mountain of God, and there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within. Isn't that really cool? So Horeb is the place where, after God freed the, Israeli, the Israelites from Egypt, and with Moses brought them to that mountain, that's where they make, God made his covenant with them. That's where God received the Ten Commandments. And Mount Horeb is the place where Moses met the angel of the Lord, met him personally, got his name, and got his calling to be the deliverer of the Israelites out of Egypt. Isn't that really cool? That's what Horeb is. But something else really significant had happened in, on Horeb with Moses. So turn to chapter 33 of Exodus. Turn to chapter 33. There's another really cool and significant story that happened on this mountain. So in chapter 33, verse 18. Then Moses says, now show me your glory. And this is kind of while he's up there in those 40 days and 40 nights. Show me your glory. And the Lord, or Yahweh, said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name. I am in your presence. In your presence. In your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. I want you to know this is the very mountain where Moses personally met and saw the glory of God. The very mountain. And in Hebrew, when it says God put him what in here is a cleft, it's a Hebrew word basically for a hole. God stuck him in a hole in the mountain. What hole do you think maybe God put him in? Huh? What hole? Do you know why Elijah's coming to this mountain? Do you know why he's coming to this very place and he goes to a cave? Because he is longing for and he needs a personal intimate encounter with the God of the universe just like Moses had. That's why he's here. 
He's like, I need to meet you the way Moses met you here. And it's very likely that he went to what he thought was the exact same spot where that had happened. Is that not cool? So continuing in verse 9. So the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Again, to me, this shows his loving care. He comes not with a statement, but with a question. God frequently does that, like Adam and Eve. Where are you? Right? Comes with a question. God doesn't need information. He doesn't need to know. But he's giving him a chance to voice his thoughts and his emotions and what's going on in his life. And he does. So in verse 10, he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me true. To kill me too. And I want you to know, all of those are true except one. Because we're going to see in a minute that he's not alone. But when you're despondent and in despair, it's really easy to feel alone. Is that not true? I totally get him. So look at God's answer in verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of I am, for I am is about to pass by. Okay, what does that sound like? It's almost the exact same words you've used of Moses in Exodus 33. I am's going to show up. I am's going to pass by. And the reason God is going to do this to all that he just shared is he's like, the thing you most need ultimately, Elijah, is you need an encounter with me, a fresh encounter. You need to meet me in my presence like full force. That's the most deep need that you have, and I'm coming, man. Are you ready, right? Isn't that really cool? The St. Augustine said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And he's like, you're needing to rest in me, man. So come meet me. So in verse 11. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Um, They don't know what that was in that culture, but we know what that was. That is a category five on the Fujita scale tornado, right? The shattering rocks. So in my imagination, that's what happened, like a tornado went through. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. God have mercy. But the Lord, he was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Came a gentle whisper. Brown Driver and Briggs translates it a low whisper. The contemporary English version, a soft whisper. The Good News translation, a soft whisper of a voice. Young's literal translation, a voice that's still and small. But what matters is, is God shows up to him. In a gentle whisper. In a gentle whisper. And I think God's clearly saying to Elijah, Elijah, don't look for me in the big and the spectacular, but you need to look for me in the quiet, in the ordinary, in the things not so easily seen, and in the mundane. Look for me in those places. I preached a sermon on that, totally on that called Miracles in the Mundane back in November of 2021 if you want to delve into that more because I think that's how God primarily operates with us in the spiritual life. But here's what we see. Elijah knew at that whisper that he was in the presence of God. He knew it. Because look at verse, sorry, that's my Moses stuff. Look at verse 13. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. He responded to God's presence exactly like Moses. Do you remember last week? Moses, when he encountered the angel of the Lord in that fire, says he covered his face. 
And Elijah has the exact same response with his hands. Elijah, with his cloak, he covers his face because he knows he's standing on holy ground. So continuing verse 13, then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Second time he's asked that. And Elijah, if it was me, is like, do you not listen the first time I speak, right? <laughs> he's given him food twice. He asks him this question twice. And he replies exactly the same. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So his perception, even in this encounter, of reality has not really changed. He answers in the exact same words. He's stuck in a mental rut and no blame on him because that's what I'm like. Whenever I find myself, we talked about this with Ruth and Naomi. Whenever I find myself in a difficult circumstance, it is so easy for me to get fixated only on that difficult circumstance and to lose vision of what God is doing in my life in other ways and lose vision of the bigger story, right? It's so easy. And he's still stuck kind of in this rut. He's stuck in this, just like Naomi was and just like I do. So after listening to Elijah a second time, I want to see what God says, verses 15 to 18. So the Lord said to him, go back, go, this word's repeated twice, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, and that's not Snapchat, it looks like it, it's Shaphat, from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So what I just see so beautifully is God is lifting his vision from that current circumstance, the difficulty. He's lifting his vision a little higher. Let me show you. I'm at work in your life. I'm not done with you yet. And I'm at work doing bigger things. Number one, Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 other people who have the same zeal you have for me, so you're not alone. And secondly, what I love is he recommissions him. You know, you see that word go twice, that he's calling him like back into active service for him, giving him a new mission, um, a fresh sending, a new task, kind of a new purpose. So to me, it's like Elijah, he's saying, Elijah, it's time to get back to your assignment now. I've had a really good time with you, but it's time to be a prophet. I need you to preach the word. I need you to anoint kings. I need you to raise up men of God for the next generation. I really love that. And finally, in that commission, the other thing I think is really cool, because Elijah's in great need right now, is he says to him, there is a man who I've already got prepared who is going to walk with you, and he's going to be your successor, and I want you to prepare him and get him ready for his mission. He's going to walk with you the remaining of your days. He's going to help carry the load, just like Samwise, Gamgee, and Frodo, right, in Lord of the Rings. I really love this. I love the story. I love this part because to me, it made me think of my parenting. You know, when you have little children, they'll be out playing outside, and one of them will get hurt, fall, scrape a knee, and they come in, they're crying. So you patch them up, you treat them, you hold them, you give them comfort, and then once they've kind of calmed down, you give them a pat on the butt and say, hey, head back out and go back out to play, right? That's what I really sense God is doing here with Elijah, what I sense he's doing. So the story finishes, verses 19 to 21. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. Okay, we saw this. He was plowing with 12 ox, yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. 
I'm going to say plowing with that many oxen meant that he came from Elisha, belonged to a very, very wealthy landowning farming, farm, farming family. He was a wealthy man, okay? And when Elijah goes up and throws his cloak on him, that was symbolic of saying, I am, I am moving and transferring my authority over onto you. And what's really interesting to me is unbeknownst to Elijah is that Elisha, Elisha would have twice the impact that he had, twice the impact. So verse 20, so Elisha then left his oxen, ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come back with you. Go back, Elijah replied, what have I done for you? So Elisha left him, went back, he took his yoke of oxen, slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his, and he became his servant. And it's really clear in here that Elijah, Elisha is making a clear break with his past, and he's like, I'm all in with God. I'm all in. Okay, let me pull this together as I take a drink from my chief's cup. As I said earlier in the story, when Elijah's calling it quits, to me the big question, but, and that's, by, that's where he's going, by the way. He literally is going almost back up to where Elisha and Damascus were. But earlier I asked the question, how's God going to show up? Because Elijah, Elijah sorry, needs shepherding, right? So the question to me was, is how is he going to show up and shepherd him? Because, you know, God really could have shown up when he first was that first night in the desert. God could have woken him up and say, Elijah, what in the heck are you doing here, right? What are you doing here? Would you just pull yourself together and get with it, right? If you would just confess some sins and pray a little more, things would be okay, right? All you need to do is just, just repent, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Or, or where's your trust, man? Are you not trusting me? What's going on? Or he could have given him the latest Craig Rochelle book and said, here, read this and apply it to your life and things will get a lot better, right? But he doesn't do all, any of that. He doesn't do any of that. Here's what I see God doing in this story. I see God caring for him and shepherding him in the totality of who he was, in his totality. So let me explain. Because over the years, I've referenced the four key relationships all of us have and our, our four key needs that are wired into us from creation. The spiritual, the emotional, the social, relational, and the physical, that these are four key relationships we all have. Look at how God shepherds him in all four areas of his life. If we start with the physical first, he touches him, not just once, but twice, okay? Gives him food, gives him drink twice, lets him sleep because he needed it. How about that relational social needs that he had? Again, he's feeling very alone. So that touch twice was really significant. He engages him with questions, and he listens. That's what good counselors do, by the way. And he listens to him. He reminds him he's not alone. And then, to me, what was super significant, he gives him a companion. Somebody that he's going to raise up, the next generation, that he's going to multiply himself into. That he's going to create a legacy. I'm going to give you a companion who you're going to invest in, who's going to make a huge impact in the future. And how about emotional? I mean, this guy was struggling emotionally, right? Most everybody agrees that he was depressed. He engages him, again, the touch. He engages him with questions. He listens. He gives him a purpose when he feels like he has no purpose again. Um, the fact that God deals with his emotional need to me is so significant. What that tells me is, is God cares about when I'm struggling with mental health and emotional things, right? Because we've all been there at some point, and I want you to know there's no shame in that at all. That's why we partner with Christ First Counseling 
because there are people who are needing to have a counselor, somebody to help walk with them through their emotional health struggles. So if you're struggling with depression or anything, contact the office. We would love to help you out with that. Um, God cares about that. And then finally is the spiritual. I mean, God himself shows up. He doesn't just send an emissary. He shows up himself. He speaks his word to him. He invites him into his presence. Um, he gets to have an encounter with him. He reframe, reframes how Elijah's thinking about everything, and he sends him out on a co-mission with him again so he can be working alongside of him. I mean, this whole encounter, when I read this, does it not smell of love and grace and caring and shepherding? Does it not just totally feel that way? So again, here's what I see in this story. I see God as Elijah's shepherd ministering to him in all four areas of his need in the totality of who he is, in the totality of who he is, meeting him at every point of his need. And I think that's so powerful. So I love this story. I love this name, Yahweh Rohi. I am your shepherd. I am your shepherd. Because Elijah encounters Yahweh Rohi in this chapter. He was touched by him. He was ministered by, to him. He was spoken to by him, healed by him, sent by him. That God was being in the essence of who he is because he can't be anything other than a shepherd. He shepherded him in his life. And here's why that's so significant to me. Um, I'll come to those in a minute. Because do you and I not need a shepherd? You ever find yourself in life desperately not needing and crying out, God, I need you to shepherd me through this. And he is, I am your shepherd. This is his name forever. He wasn't just that way for Moses. He isn't just that way for David. He's not just that way for Elijah. He is that way for you. And he's there waiting for you. And Elijah learned what we often learn, that when I find that God is all there is, I find that he's really all that I need. So I'm wondering, some questions. Where are you needing God's provision of shepherding in your life right now? Where are you needing his shepherding in your life right now? Physically? Maybe a health issue? Is it socially, relationally, broken relationships or something? Emotionally? Spiritually? Is it a combination? Is it all of them? I'm curious, what circumstance do you find yourself in where you're crying out in your heart, Lord, please shepherd me through, in and through this? I want you to just take a minute, just close your eyes before the Lord. And even ask him that question. Maybe you have a sense of it. And if so, just in your heart, cry out, Lord, I, you are my Yahweh, Rohi. I need you to shepherd me so badly in this. And let him know. Maybe you don't know. It's just asking him, Lord, show me a way I'm needing your shepherding right now. All right, I mean, we all need a shepherd, right? So here's my challenge to you from this story because only God can meet all of my needs that if you do have an area where you're needing shepherding, like run to him because he is your shepherd and he wants to meet that need. And the th I think the most important thing I learned from this story is run to him. It's so easy for me to run to other places to solve my problems. Run to him because only he can meet all of my needs. Only he can shepherd me through anything. Give me the wisdom I need, the strength. So, I don't know where you are in your daily time with God, but if you've gotten away from it, get back to it because you desperately need your shepherd in your life. Do you know that? You need him speaking to you daily through his word. Um, get in the Psalms especially. David knew him as a shepherd. And in the Psalms, you see David expressing, 
full force, his experiences, his feelings, his heart. He doesn't hold anything back from God. So let the Psalms become your prayers. Get into Psalm 23. Get to know that Psalm. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Let it become part of who you are. Just come to know this God who is Yahweh Rohi. You know, if you need to get out of town for a day like, like Elijah and go to the Flynn Hills where I go just to get away and spend time with him. If you're like, I just need an encounter of some kind or I'm needing a, a fresh meeting, just do whatever it takes, okay? But get with this God. And here's my last challenge. I'm going to give to this whole series, find my Bible. When I was in Bible college, I was still kind of a new Christian, but I didn't know the names of God. And I found out about them through a book. And I ended up writing all of his names in the front of my New American Standard that I had back then. I have his name, I had what it meant, and I had the scripture that it came from. And I was challenged by that book to actually pray his names, to talk to him in whatever my idea it is to talk to him that way. And so that's something I really encourage you. Maybe it's, a lot of people use phones now, I know, but figure out some way to get his names in your Bible or before you. And as you go through your life, pray to God in these names. And I want you to stand with me and do this because we're actually going to do this together. So would you stand? And as you stand, I was meeting with a guy a couple weeks ago, Zach Krause. I don't know how many of you know Zach. And he was sharing with me a prayer that he had. And he didn't even know I was going to talk about this. And he started that prayer, Yahweh Rohi, the Lord, my shepherd, the I am who is my shepherd. And I thought, that is so cool. That's how he's praying. So I want to do that this morning. And I'm going to do this using kind of the model of ACTS. It's a way to pray. I'm going to flip the T and the C. But would you join me in praying first with adoration? Yahweh Rohi, you are my shepherd. You watch over me and care for me in every area of need. I praise you for that reality. Thank you for your shepherding care in the totality of my life my physical, social, emotional, and spiritual needs. I don't always see it, but I know that you are always there. As my shepherd, you promise to provide for me all that I need. I confess that many times I focus on what I do not have. Wow, if an ungrateful, discontented heart. I must seem like an ungrateful child to you at times. I ask for your forgiveness and grace. Finally, my loving shepherd, I have so many areas of need. At times they feel innumerable. Please meet my needs in the way and in the time that you know is best. And help me to fully trust your shepherd's heart. Today I declare my trust in you. I pray this in the name of Jesus the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Amen. And God's people said, amen. Okay, before I send you, I forgot this first service too, but this is an app that Russ and about pointed me to last summer. Lectio 365, that's like a seven-minute thing in the morning and a seven-minute thing in the evening. And it has, it has really enhanced my walk with God. It's, it's my intimacy with him especially the evening, because in the evening, it asks you about some of the emotions you experienced that day and, to wa- and it helps you walk with God through that. So I really, really encourage you to use this. But can I pray for us? Father, not just Father, Yahweh, Rohi, I am my shepherd. I am your shepherd. Lord, I thank you for that reality. I desperately need your shepherding in so many areas of my life. 
So I thank you that this is one of the ways you reveal yourself as to who you are in a way that you come to me and for me. And so, Lord, I just come. There's a lot of needs here that only you can meet. I just pray that you would meet those needs. Help us to learn to, to know you as this kind of God and to put our trust in you. And I pray this again in the name of Jesus, the good shepherd. Amen. All right, 12, you are sent to live um, being shepherded by God this week.